All right, I've got Clyde Kusatsu on the podcast today. How are you, Clyde? Um, well, thank you. You know, you've done uh, quite a fair bit of movies. You were in uh, Star Trek, were you? Uh, part. You know, I'm trying to get the Air AirPods to work, but it doesn't seem to be working right now. Hold on. Yeah. Hmm. I'll just... I'm still being heard fine by you then, right? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Then I'll just do it that way then. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm sorry, again, what was the yeah. question? Yeah, so you you played in uh, Star Trek, did you? Yeah, play? I did three episodes in Star Trek Next Generation as Vice Admiral Nakamura, wow. who went to the Space Academy with uh, Picard, Command, uh, Captain Picard, we were classmates, but uh, I was, I outranked him. Yeah, so, I- and uh, your acting career, have you uh, had uh, discrimination and uh, have you had a lot of setbacks yourself? Of course, you have to go. I mean, I, I see I was um, in high school. I started theater in the 60s. I went to Northwestern University Theater School. I was a theater major there for four years from 66 to 1970. I graduated with a degree in theater, and then I came out to Los Angeles in 71. And back then, it was very um, difficult if you're a newbie to, to get cast. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing is, uh, well, you can't see you unless you have an agent. Mm. How do you get an agent? Well, did you do anything? Mm. So it was like uh, the catch-22, the chicken before the egg kind of a thing. But there was another way where if you were... Uh, had, a, say, a, a, a union card from uh, Actors' Equity doing theater, mm. then you could join either after at the time, which is a television radio uh, artist a union, and, and or sag after. But uh, at any rate, uh, the two years was good stead. It was almost like doing postgraduate work and uh, doing a lot of theater, keeping up the training regimen so that I was ready when I got my first opportunity in 1973 and was cast in an episode of Kung Fu mm-hmm. uh, with David Carradine. It was, uh, it was a breakthrough series in the sense that it was the first time, even though David's character was part Asian, that the lead was an Asian uh, character mm-hmm. and just so happened to be in the, the Wild West and also brought up the same time the anti-Chinese discrimination going on uh, in the United States at the time where you know, the, the railroad workers um, from the West Coast to Midpoint was the Chinese ra- laborers who built that part of the railroad. And then from St. Louis to the, that point in Utah were basically the Irish that did it. Mm. So, but the most difficult part was from the West Coast through to Utah, Promontory Point, because of the, the mountain ranges and, and the, the harshness of the climate, the winters and snows and everything like that, in which um, a lot of times uh, many Chinese laborers would die. And that's where the phrase uh, wouldn't give them a Chinaman's chance mm. because they'd set up the explosion to blow out the rock and they didn't care if people died or not, you know. Mm. So it just moved on. So have you, you worked on big Hollywood films as well? With celebrities, yeah, yeah. Wow. I have, yeah. So you know, from from um, first film I ever did, um, first film I one of the first films I did was uh, Midway in, in 1975. It's become uh, 
the uh, that perennial when it deals with uh, the Battle of Midway and the Japanese uh, Navy and the Imperial uh, Navy. Mm. And uh, every year it's brought out. And it was the first opportunity I got to work with uh, Toshiro Mifune, mm -hmm. who is one of the classic uh, uh, icons of Japanese uh, film. Uh, and then a few years later in 81, on a Jan John Frankenheimer film called The Challenge, I got to work with uh, Toshiro Mifune again in a similar kind of a role where, um, like in Midway, for example, I played the real life character of Admiral Yamamoto's aide. And in the first seven pages that we open up the film, I would get these rewrites, you know, pink pages, blue pages. And all of a sudden I was getting all the dialogue. Well, they launched land-based bombers, B-25s from aircraft carriers. And uh, uh, Mifune's lines were, when, mm. how, and I'm describing the whole thing. So then years later, when I'm doing the Frankenheimer picture, I got to shoot in Kyoto for about four months. Uh, it, I was the same kind of role. I was, uh, you know, explaining what the dialogue was and everything like that, or the plot. But then years later, at that time, Mifune-san's uh, wife was pregnant at the time. So years later, the daughter from that pregnancy, Mika, Mifune, I wound up getting an um, inquiry from NHK about having an interview done by her. And it was like, uh, like old home week in a way. It's like so many years later. But I was, uh, she told me an interesting little bit of information that was very touching in that she said, yes, my father would always talk about working with you and how much I helped you. I mm -hmm. helped him with his English and everything like that. And I went, really? That's kind of cool to know that uh, uh, Mifune-san uh, would uh, consider and was uh, very appreciative of uh, the times that we did work together. Yes, yeah, so mm -hmm. if you're talking about large uh, uh, films, Hollywood productions, I also, for example, did um, uh, Paradise Road in Australia. For Bruce Beresford was a director. And uh, we shot up in uh, Port Douglas, up in Queensland, and nice. also in Penang, Penang, Malaysia. And uh, got to spend a lot of time up there, Port Douglas. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, that's where I learned that in Australia, since the continent was isolated, there are different forms of animal and plant material life, that uh, you follow the directions. You don't veer from the path. If wow. you're on the beach, don't lie down because there's saltwater crocs out there. Mm. And, and if you leave the path on the trail, you've got plants that can shoot spikes into your your hand or your legs or whatever that would burn. And there's like certain uh, trees of acid that will burn you as well. Then, of course, there's the five most venomous snakes in the world there. And then I uh, just learned the, the, to, uh, that I didn't go into the water of the Coral Sea off of Port Douglas because they were saying that there is uh, a... Um, kind of a creature that burrows in something about urethra. So it happens to both men and women. Mm. So that if you wind up peeing in the water, it opens up the gates so that for the creature to go in mm. to your uh, areas of the anatomy that have the urethra yes, and yes. requires a very painful surgery to get the, the creepy crawler out of there. So I was mm. very grateful not to be uh, 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 to experience that one. So there was that, and 
So that was with, uh, of, of course, uh, uh, Bruce Beresford, the director. It was Kate Blanchett's first film back then. We had uh, Glenn Close and um, Juliana Margulies. Uh, there's a whole big uh, cast of characters. Very hot up there in Queensland, mm. you know, the humidity and everything like that. And then another film I did that we shot in Hong Kong and London was um, Shanghai Surprise that starred uh, Sean Penn and Madonna when they first got married. But uh, so we shot that in Hong Kong and then interiors in London. But the, the best thing about it was, was that our exec producer was George Harrison of the Beatles. And uh, it's, it was his company, Handmade Films, that produced it. And at one point in Hong Kong, um, we're on location at the beach, and I see this figure walking towards me with a smile and going, hello, Clyde, you're very funny. The dailies are great. Mm. And I went to myself, I went, Jesus Christ, that's George Harrison of the Beatles talking to me. Wow. And so I said, well, thank you, George. But, you know, I got to tell you, growing up with your your music, you know, that was that was it. And then he just said, oh, yeah, well, that was another time, wasn't it? We've got to mm. move on with our lives, don't we? And then he was carrying at that time, of course, like a Walkman. And I said, uh, what you got there? Just, well, I'm writing a movie. Would you like to hear? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. So he put the earphones in there. And I thought it would be like sort of like piano tinkling or, you know, guitar or whatever. But it was full blown production because, of course, he's got his own recording studio in his home. And he'd have people like uh, Eric Clapton or other people come in and lay a few tracks. And then you, you synthesize it all together, you know. And then he just said, uh, well, I'm writing the music and I hope Madonna will sing one of the songs. But of course, Madonna never did. Um, but that was an experience. And so, um, you know, I'm very fortunate in my career to be able to have uh, traveled the world on location for different things. Uh, from uh, like in Mexico, down in Tuxtepec, where we did volunteers with Sean, uh, with uh, Tom Hanks and uh, John Candy. Mm-hmm. We were down there. And then a few years later, I was down in uh, Mexico City doing, uh, it was a two-hour movie pilot of The Librarian, which was a thing that was on TNT. I don't know. I think it's been released around the world as a, one of the librarian films. And uh, and of course, one big film I, uh, I did in uh, 04 that uh, Sidney Pollack directed had Nicole Kidman and Sean, again, Sean Penn, uh, it was called The Interpreter, which took place in New York City and dealt with the United Nations. And I played uh, Chief Wu, who was the head of the United Nations security there. So what was cool about it was it was the first time uh, a movie was allowed to shoot on the grounds and within the UN itself. I mean, even when Hitchcock uh, attempted to film in there, he was denied. So then when he did North by Northwest, he could only steal a shot of Cary Grant and meeting Eva St. Marie uh, in a, a, a taxi cab outside of it. That was as close as he got. So like the sets that were in my scenes were all there at the UN. So we, we shot that on a Saturday and Sunday. And it was around the time, one day it was uh, all of a sudden, everything was on lockdown because it just so happened there was gonna, there was a security talk uh it was the the iraqi war was going on at that time you know Mm -hmm. so and uh but then uh uh, the workers of the united nations didn't care for our our president at the time so whenever george w would be speaking there 
they'd take a cigarette break or lunch break and turn off the mics, uh, speakers, so they didn't have to listen. Wow. And, uh, you know, so, but it was, working with Sidney Pollack was, uh, was great as well. Uh, I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of uh, well-known directors and very good directors, you know, like Wolfgang Peterson, mm -hmm. when we did uh, In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood uh, way back in 92. I think I was very fortunate in 92. I wound up doing six different films that just so happened in 93 were released, uh, like Made in America, Rising Sun, In the Line of Fire, Dragon, the wow. story. You know, for so for a while there was like the joke was I was having my own mini film festival going up there and everything. So, so, so I looked uh, up your uh, IMBD profile. You've done a lot of work. Did you play an American Pie, or did you get close to the role? Of no, no, Pie? I was the English teacher in American Pie. In the first in fact, one, originally I didn't know what people were talking about because at the time I did it, it was uh, the, this casting director. Uh, said, will you do do me a favor? These are two young brothers are doing a film yeah. called East Grand Forks High, dealing with high school. And would you play the role of the English teacher? I said, yeah, sure, great. You know, it was Chris and Paul Weitz who went on to do more. Um, and uh, at any rate, um, I mean, I went on the set and all of a sudden these two young kids really came up and says, geez, thank you very much for being able to. I said, fine, you're, you're welcome. You know, and so you did it and I did it. And all these younger people there had no clue what it was going to be. I didn't know if it's going to be a small independent uh, trying to find a place. And then a few months later, there was all this talk in town about American Pie, American Pie. I had no clue what it was. And a friend of mine, Will Hoy, who's an editor, went, dude, you're in American Pie, man. Mm, it's going to nice. hit big. <laughs> that know, was a so good movie. And it, and it did hit big, you know. It so, was. I saw it. It was a good movie. Did you get the into the second and third, or was just just the no? First? This is the first one. Just the first one. You know, it's like uh, sometimes you take advantage. Um, you always have your ear to the ground, so to speak. Like uh, I remember, there's another film, little film called Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, and uh, it didn't do too well when it's first release. But it was one of these project films that on cable and DVDs, it just was huge which led them to do Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. And so my uh, agent said, well, they're looking for uh, Harold's uh, parents. And there's not much in the scene. Uh, I think the dad is maybe one line and the mother has maybe two lines or whatever. So I went into audition and they said, look, look just combine all the lines together, you know? And they said, uh, and he said, you, you sure you want to do this? It's just kind of a, a tiny kind of a role. And I went, hey, this is the potential of being a franchise because of Harold Kumar go to White Castle. So that's what I mean by having your ear to the ground. And what may seem a lot of people not familiar, you kind of have an inkling it might hit, you know. So um, wound up, uh, we went to Shreveport, Louisiana to shoot it. And um, when we got to the set, uh, the directors, the co-directors, the co-writers and producers were there. And they said, you know what? Why don't we just improv, you know? Just everybody have fun, just go for it. And we just did. It was it was terrific because everyone was trained to do that, you know? And uh, in essence, what you see in that film is what we 
improv and they kept the, most of it all in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and it really worked. And the reason why you do it is like kind of a cultural icon where you're going, going hey, you were Harold Kumar, you were Harold's father on the thing. What happened in Harold Kumar Christmas? I said, well, no, that axed out, that didn't go there. But it is what it is. And sometimes it's kind of kind of fun just to be part of uh, a franchise or, or a series of films or television, you know, and it, upon retrospect, as I look, I'm in my 48th year now, my career, uh, in front of the camera or behind the mic. And, uh, you know, so it, I'm very grateful to be able to still get to, uh, to do this. I mean, uh, recently I did, uh, I, if you're in a Netflix aficionado, there's a thing called Never Have I Ever, which is like in its second season, a, a young adult thing, very popular. Mm -hmm. And I play the leads, uh, grandfather, grandfather, Ted, grandpa, Ted. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was another one of those instances as well. I understand there's a lot of heat with this thing and it's very popular and uh and sure enough it's sort of like now i've got almost a new cycle of younger fans are going oh man you're you're grandpa ted i love that mm. and you know it's one of those things you go well okay I'll, hopefully they'll pick it up for a third season and um and i've been also during this pandemic it's work has been very uh, sparse because of the opportunities aren't there because production was shut down complete for a long time last year and slowly got back to work as, and it's still being worked out because we have to deal with the safety protocols mm -hmm. around the world. <clears throat> actors and performers have to deal with safety protocols because it's a serious thing what we're dealing with, with the pandemic. And so it's really important to mask up. Uh, I myself have been got my two vaccinations, uh, Pfizer, and also um, testing, like mm -hmm. you usually get a, a PCR test is what they call it, before you have a wardrobe fitting or before you have a table read. Uh, and then if for the instance, like there's a show called The United States of Al, which is a half hour sitcom on CBS. And I just uh, finished doing an episode of that, playing a doctor in which before, you know, you get that test before the table read, the day of the table read, you take another short nasal test. And mm -hmm. then every day that you report to the studio, you take a test to make sure. And then you also self-test in the sense of symptoms so that before you drive onto the lot, you're cleared by the main studio system. Before you report onto the stage, you have to wait for the short test to test. It's okay to go ahead and do the work. And so that makes you feel very secure about the whole situation. And I see we have Kelly here yeah, uh, hi. Moderator here, uh, mm -hmm. handling the Zoom call. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> Kylie, I'm sorry, Kylie. Sorry, just listening in. I'm enjoying. No, that's all right. The that's all right. I, I have to say, Clyde, and off off the record, just my own opinion. I do love Never Have I Ever. Oh, well, cool. I'm glad. You're great. You're one of the bingers on that, then. Okay, that's cool. Great. See, uh, with that one was was really good because. Um, it's for the first time a whole younger generation was informed about the Japanese incarceration to the concentration camps during World War II. Mm -hmm. And usually that's sort of become dry history. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. That's what's happened. But then with the main character finding and learning out his grandfather, 
was put into the camp and everything, it resonated much more and it became much more pertinent for a lot of the younger people to be more aware of what's happening because around this time what's happening is that there's a whole, because of the pandemic and the blaming of the, the pandemic, uh, this COVID-19 on the Chinese, mm. called the Chinese virus or Kung flu, or all this part of the, what we talked about at the beginning about this anti-Asian discrimination happening, mm -hmm. stop the Asia, stop the Asian hate kind of a thing is very powerful because um, it is an element that as each decade happens, it has a resurgence. But on the plus side of it all, as awful as it may be, what it has done was unite everyone in the AAPI, that's Asian American Pacific Islanders, to identify that it was like, before in the past it would be, oh no, that is a Chinese problem or Chinese American problem or Japanese American problem or Korean or Hmong or Vietnamese. But now everyone realizes that in the grand scheme of things, the race is considered everybody mm. <clears throat> the target. And so now there's sort of like a unifying factor about that. And, and the ability now and the need for people to speak up against it, to push back, because so many times the, uh, it's a cultural thing. You don't want to say anything. You don't want to make any waves. You don't want, but a lot of times for in an Asian culture to draw attention would bring shame upon your family or your, 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 uh, your cultural group. I mean, in Japan, there's a saying, if the nail stands up, it's your duty to hammer it back down. So mm -hmm. no one stands out, you know. Now, you, you have a college degree. I was watching an interview and uh, your professor said you'd never be an actor. Is that correct? You decided oh, yeah. you wanted yeah. to be an yeah. actor. That's a true college. story. Yeah. Um, because back in 1966, um, I suppose it had never encountered that, that uh, all of a sudden there was a drama major that was uh, of a diverse nature, so to speak, you know, a non-white in, in department. And I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, so I did have in my freshman year, a professor stopped me and said, uh, why do you want to be an actor? Because there's only King and I and Tios of the August Moon. How could you possibly think? And how could you possibly make a living? Mm. And it was, I mean, I was shocked. I speechless and I was devastated. And it took a long time. So what are you going to do about it? And you didn't have a comeback to that. And then I spent some time back home in Hawaii working on a, on a nice shift at this brewery and saying, and making this self-discovery that if I have to work 10 times harder than a white student to get noticed, this is what I'm gonna have to do. Mm. And so when I got back that sophomore year, I try out for directing scenes, other acting scenes, children's theater, whatever it, it took. And within that next three years in the department, I became a working actor within the department half the professors would cast me, half the cast, uh, those professors who wouldn't cast me would hold me up as an example of the opportunities that students have to be working in theater, you know. And in the meantime, in the summers, I did summer theater in Aspen, Colorado, uh, Michigan City, Indiana, Grand Lake, Colorado, doing what we call summer stock, summer theaters, doing like say six shows. And all the roles that I played in summer stock and at university level, were character roles. None of them ever were Asian, but that was great training ground for myself because uh, you learn to be a disciplined actor and you understand that that's where I 
Yeah, I mean, I once had a my senior year, a, a younger black actor say, <clears throat> "Don't it doesn't bother you?" I said, "What?" He says, "Because you're oppressed." I said, "What do you mean I'm oppressed?" And I would ask my friends. Said um, Bill, said I'm oppressed. Do you think I'm oppressed? And my other friends would go, "What are you crazy? You're one of the workingest guys in the department. How can you be oppressed?" And I could see what in the in the in a way because his point was, well, they'll never cast you as a lead in the romantic lead to kiss the heroine mm. because of the, you know it doesn't work out that way. Of course, it's all soccer block now. It's all changed, but back then. It wasn't until I got to Hollywood in 1971 where all of a sudden I became an Oriental. That was the old term for Asian. And that before it became like then became Asian American. And but at the same time, I'll tell you a little anecdote. The act, acting opportunities for Asian actors in Hollywood were very few. I mean, you could look at it in two hands and they're always like kind of stereotypic, you know, uh, the Chinatown thing or this thing or the laundryman or this and that. And it took, though it took a show like Kung Fu to become popular in the national zeitgeist with Carradine, with this quiet monk who happened to kick ass as a martial artist and could do overturn uh, the bullies after mm -hmm. him. So I, I wound up um, getting cast my second episode of Kung Fu um, because I had done very well in the first episode I did. And they didn't have that many uh, classically trained Asian actors in town. In fact, myself and another guy were probably the only ones. I mean, I once had a casting director in Kung Fu see me come into the office and says, there you are, grab me by the hand and take me down the hallway and open the door and says, this is the guy I'm talking to you, talking about, he can talk. You know, a lot of times it would cast to what the people look like and then because they couldn't act, they just put the voiceover later on in, in looping and in dubbing in post. So at any rate, um, I wound up, my second TV show was as a guest star and I was uh, played a middle-aged, so they grade me. That wouldn't have happened today. But um, after the first rehearsal, before we were to shoot, uh, the director said, oh, Clyde, you're sounding too American. Can you give us an accent? And, you know, your hackles run up and you're ready to have that chip on your shoulder activated. And I went, no, hold on. So what I decided to do was I used a dialect like I was doing a stage production, like I'd done in Restoration Comedy. So I went, you know, Kwai Chang Kane, we the member of the Tongs. And cut. that's it. That sounds good. But that's the lesson I learned. It was different. It wasn't American but I never sacrificed uh, uh, by doing like the real L and the R kind of uh, stereotypic uh, accent that they were looking for. Because if you can give them something different, you don't have to be defended about it because all they're looking for is something that sounds different and doesn't sound American or whatever. And of course, the big thing of like a film like Crazy Rich Asians about three years ago, was all of a sudden the world saw all these Asian actors speaking like Brits, Aussies, New Zealanders, you know, and uh, Americans. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I thought it was very cool because where does it say that uh, you have to sound a certain way with your English? And what's very cool about uh, in, in England 
and now and then also you see a lot more diversity like in Australian productions and English productions that so you may have um, a love interest between a South Asian and, and a white fella or a black um, fella with a white Anglo-Saxon type of thing and there's nothing I mean aside if you're dealing with redneck kind of a, a, a provincial attitudes for the most part it's just accepted part of the social milieu and which is kind of cool you know and then further down under in New Zealand they've got um a, there was a series I think there was maybe one season where the lead was a Samoan detective mm -hmm. in New Zealand and I didn't know there's this big Samoan population in New Zealand but of course Samoa is just very is one of the closest things to New Zealand but again that just um the more you see of diversity, the more it educates the world that the world is not a uh, mono, monolithic or mono. Uh, it, it, the the palette, the rainbow is not monochromatic, but a rainbow of colors, a diverse. That's what a rainbow is. So that's why I always like to use that analogy, saying, you know, the rainbow is not monochromatic. It's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Which gets the point across without having to go into the whole um, uh, racial trying to educate people about it. A lot of times, it's the simplest way is to give the make the point about racism, prejudice, and everything like that. Um, also, I remember, I remember years uh, in my career, I would meet people from the Asian community, and they'd go, "Oh, thank you for your work." We always knew if we saw you, we wouldn't feel embarrassed. And I thought, well, thank you very much. Because back in way when I was growing up, it didn't matter how you sounded or whatever. But if you saw an Asian face, you'd go, come, look, take a look. Mm. It may be a houseboy and bachelor father or whatever, because you seldom saw people that looked like you on the TV, you know. So, but now it, now it thank God, it's uh, evolved. And so that the world knows now that it is a international marketplace, so to speak, and that there are markets around the world. That's what Netflix has learned, for example, that when people don't want to read uh, subtitles, they want to mm -hmm. hear the translated or dubbed version in English or whatever, but it has to sound like that specific country's character. And that's where actors come in. Instead of just a mono, you know, monologue, of boring kind of a, without emotion, uh, now you have in LA at least they're hiring actors to be Middle Eastern, to be French, to be Asian, whatever. To and they bring and added because they're acting. They're acting mm -hmm. maybe to what the character they're they're um, looping or dubbing, but it, it infuses that extra thing that the audience gets immediately and wants to see and they don't need to have the subtitles because a lot of people are, are feel conflicted about watching the thing and then reading it whereas i'm i'm perfectly fine with it i can train i've trained my eyes so that i be able to watch it and, and at least understand what's going on and it doesn't bother me about doing that you know so um that's where that is yeah Clyde, great uh, podcast with you today uh, where can people find you on social media or reach out to you and what's your next movie you're working on? 
Well, right now, you know, heck, they're not writing much for guys who are going to turn 73. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a, a couple of, um, there's a, a animated show called Phaeton, mm -hmm. which is on AMC Plus, that's probably going to be released next year, where it all deals with cyberspace or whatever, and I play one of the characters in there. And then there's another uh, animated show called Blue-Eyed Samurai, on Netflix that I've done about maybe four or five episodes on it, which stars Darren Barnett, who plays my grandson Paxton on Never Have I Ever. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, just keep busy doing that. Um, the days of um, big projects are sort of uh, not as uh, readily available, but mm -hmm. but so, that's, that's fine. I mean, uh, I've been doing a lot of work uh, as a, um, uh, unpaid uh, uh, leader in uh, SAG after the union, mm -hmm. which is very uh, rewarding in itself to represent uh, your fellow actors and performers and making sure that the contracts are strong and then the rules are enforced uh, and that we are not our worst enemies when it comes to that mm -hmm. and that you can uh, report violations or whatever, you know, and do not not report anything of that nature. That's what the union is there for, to protect you. Sweet. I'll put a link in the description for SAG AFRA as well. Uh, I'll reference your IMBD profile. But yeah, thanks for coming on today, Clyde. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome.